I'm Joe. And I'm Eric. And I'm Jim, and this is Speaking of Race. And today we're talking to two longtime friends of ours, and they've both previously been on our podcast, Alan Goodman and Joe Graves. They've recently published their book, Racism, Not Race, Answers to Frequently Asked Questions, which just got a very nice review from Augustine Fuentes in last week's issue of Science. So if you don't believe what we have to say, go to the magazine and read about it. That's right. <laughs> Joe is an evolutionary biologist and geneticist. He's a professor of biological science at North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. Go Aggies. <laughs> Alan is a professor of biological anthropology at Hampshire College. Go now we could. Sisters. Yeah, ghosters. Yeah. <laughs> we could probably fill the whole episode just talking about their accomplishments, but right. we really need to talk about the book. So what I'm going to do is just link to their Wikipedia pages in the show notes so you can see how incredibly accomplished our two guests are. Suffice it for now to say that they have both authored books that Joe and I have used to teach about race in our classes. So Me they're too. experts. Yeah. Welcome, Joe and Alan, to the show. Well, thanks for having us, guys. Thank you for having us, for sure. <laughs> You're repeat customers, too. Yeah. We thought once, you'd be like, we're done. But here you are. <laughs> I'm happy well, to say this is my third time at five. You have to give me a green jacket. <laughs> oh, right. that's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and what I was going to say is, you know, so long as people keep believing incredibly um, inane stuff about race and, and racism, you know, we'll probably be reappearing. I'd really like that. <laughs> yeah, Unfortunately, really I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it. So for those folks who haven't read the book yet, Racism, Not Race, Answers to Frequently Asked Questions. I feel like that title could be a little confusing, isn't necessarily the word, but maybe not 100% clear up front. So could you just start off by explaining where that title came from and how you're trying to get people to focus more on maybe the behavior around racism rather than the concept of race itself? Well, you want me to do that. All right, so Alan's <laughs> pointing at me, right? Yeah. Even though, you know, that title really wasn't my idea. But at the end of the day, the idea was we wanted to deal with this fundamental conflation that, that people have uh, in our society. And that is conflating the notion of the biological conception of race with socially defined or socially constructed race. And we wanted to make the point that humans, while not having biological races, do definitely have socially defined races and that those socially defined races have consequences. And one of those consequences is racism, which we describe in intimate detail in the book. And we wanted to make the point that in, it was actually racism that invented social definitions for the purposes of hierarchy and suppression of people who were racialized, huh. as opposed to an inherently natural division existing within our species that people would see as biological race. Alan, did you want to add to that? Sure. That I mean, I, I think Joe said it really well. And to simply say, I think the title points to the fact that a lot of what we think is due to race or specifically biological differences among the races is actually due to the lived experiences that different races have historically and do continue to live under. And part of that is racism. 
So differences, for example, in infant mortality, health, incarceration rates, et cetera, our impacts are racism, are how we treat each other versus inherent biological notions of difference. This is an academic book and it came out through Columbia University Press, but one of the things I, I really appreciate that you both did in this book is that you gave so much of your own personal stories, a lot up front, but then I noticed throughout the book, you peppered in lots of stories where you saw these concepts that you're trying to debunk come up in your own lives. For listeners who don't know you, it's true that Jim is gonna put the Wikipedia entries for both of you <laughs> in the show notes, but would you be willing to just sort of briefly introduce here, like some salient points about how these particular issues touched on your own individual personal lives, how those backgrounds sort of developed your scholarship with respect to, to race? That was a big question. Tell us about yourselves. <laughs> would have been an easier one. <laughs> well, as I've, I've said to, to folks before, I've actually finished a book called A Voice in the Wilderness, a pioneering biologist explains how evolution can help us solve our biggest problems. That's going to be published by Basic Books in the fall of 2022. Okay. And in that book, so preview. I, I do a whole bunch of, of more detail than, than we do in Racism, Not Race. But the bottom line here is, uh, you know, I was born one year after Brown versus Board of Education. Mm. Emmett Till was lynched that same year. I experienced, you know, at every step of my education and life, structural and institutional racism to this very day. Yeah. You know, I am an African-American in, in, in a racist society. So while I, you know, I really wouldn't, and I've said this, I really didn't want to write about race. I wanted to write about fruit flies and life history. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and stuff like that. But you know, I, could, I, I couldn't get away from it as much as I wanted to try. So, you know, that's my story. Yeah, and Joe has lived race and racism in ways that somebody with white skin privilege hasn't. And I think it was important to have both represented here. Though I, I have some sort of outsider perspective. I grew up as a work of a kid family of five with a dad with an eighth grade education who became a refrigeration mechanic and part of pipe fitters union and you know in a wonderfully irish and italian catholic neighborhood and but i was different i was on the outside i was one of two jewish kids in an elementary school of about 300 so i think i had some sense of what it was like to be on the outside though i will not say it was ethnically, religiously on the outside and not really racially on the outside, though there was some sense of being, you know, inherently different from people that my friends. And, but for me, a real turning point, you know, was going to college and going to graduate school. And as Jim knows, you know, because we grew up together intellectually, I'm a biological, a biocultural anthropologist, and that's a different place where I think Joe and I also, you know, bring different traditions to what we're doing. Um, I was always interested in 
the way that large-scale political economic processes, poverty, inequality affect individuals under the skin. That's biocultural anthropology for me. I also was interested in racism, but to be honest, you know, I did not didn't focus much on racism. And one key turning point for me was the 1996 meetings. I didn't know, Jim, if you were there, of the American Association of yeah. Physical Anthropologists, now called Biological Anthropologists in Raleigh, down the road from Jim. And at that point, 26 years ago, you could count the number of biological anthropologists of color on a hand. And I looked around at one the hand, meetings. Yeah. yeah, one hand, Jim. Yeah. And I looked around at the meetings and virtually none of them were there. And so I took an afternoon and I went over to Duke to visit a good friend, Lee Baker. And we were talking about the whiteness of the discipline and the fact that the few people who are really talking about human variation and the non-racial aspects of human variation were the few faculty and colleagues of color. And so I, I felt obligated. I felt like this was something I wanted to get involved in. So that's what led me to, to have the privilege of writing a book with Joseph Graves. And, and yes, I do remember those meetings that that was I have a nice T-shirt from it, I guess. That was my, that was my heritage from that meeting. I was going to ask, um, but just for my own curiosity, when you were at that 96 meeting, did Bell Curve come up at all? Did people discuss the book at all? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't really remember, but my guess is probably not. People just avoid yeah, it. Yeah, I, I don't. I mean, there was, I was part of a current anthropology kind of response to the bell curve, but yeah, I I don't, yeah, that's a good point. And I don't remember. I mean, I, I only stayed at the meeting for about a day and turned around and went home. Again, guys, I'm telling you, I'm trying, trying to get off this race thing. <laughs> I really am. I really would like to like never write about race again. Uh. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, the white supremacists aren't going to give me that option. No. Nope. Yeah, for real. Speaking of, uh, I wanted to ask a question about the white supremacy changes, I guess you could say, that are happening in the world right now. A lot has actually changed since. So I think you began talking about the book or thinking about the book in 2019. It came out very late last year, 2021. And even since then or in that span of time between 2019 and the present, uh, there's been a lot that's gone on, right? The killing of George Floyd, the BLM protests, COVID, the whole thing. Given everything that's going on in the world right now, how do you look back on the book already, even though it's brand new? Is there anything you do differently and or um, was there anything at the time of the writing that you felt was especially urgent given COVID and the BLM protests and everything else? If I can start this one, Alan, we started writing this book because we both saw where the nation was heading. And, not, and it's not just the United States, because white supremacy was making a, a, a resurgence all over the world. And, and other, you know, fascist type, type movements were beginning to show up. So, you know, we really wanted to be able to bring this book out at a time that we thought was absolutely crucial. Columbia did a great job of this book, and we're really happy that you know Columbia published it. But when we originally wrote it, our goal was to go to one of the big name presses, and you know our literary agent showed it around to a lot of the big name presses, who all kept making excuse after excuse after excuse 
for not offering us a contract. And then George Floyd was murdered. But by that time, we'd already signed with Columbia. And books were literally appearing like, you know, mushrooms in a field after the rain, Mm. after the George Floyd murder, because now all of a sudden these publishing houses were saying, oh, people might actually read a book about race and racism. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our, our goal from the start was to ring the alarm bell about the rise of white supremacist ideology and also to call out the myths that are behind it. And that's what we wanted to do. I think if you read the book, you know that we projected a lot of what happened in the fall of 2021, Mm -hmm. you know, down to Donald Trump's attempt to, you know, maintain himself in the White House. Yeah, I I would add in terms of what changed over that one and a half or two year period, more police killings, you know, George Floyd and the protest after were big public events, but that's, I think the point is that they were public events. They didn't change underlying ideology. That ideology was always there. In some sense, you could say George Floyd was part of the visible tip of the iceberg of racism. And so that brought it into public consciousness and maybe opened up an opportunity to talk a little bit more deeply about racism, but that's it. Nothing's changed. You know, racism persists. So Joe, I know that you were a co-author on that paper that explained the 2014 national survey data, which was examining the perception of whether ability or athleticism or intellect and health, if those things were primarily determined by race and genetics, or were they primarily determined by other social factors? It's a paper that came out in 2018. So two questions about that. The first is what were the findings that in, from your analysis of the 2014 data that convinced you that there was still a lot of work to be done to dismantle biological race? So that's the first one. And then the second one is, has anything changed in the seven years since you did the analysis that came out in 2018 and now? <laughs> well, to make a long story short, what the survey showed is that people were continuing to conflate biological and social conceptions of race. Mm, yes. and that was really apparent. And there's a deeper dive on that survey that hasn't been published yet. And and some of the, the areas of the conflation and, and some of the misconceptions that are really sort of telling about where, where the American public is, one of them is uh, I discuss in a in a chapter that's coming out in a book on critical approaches to science um, and religion, hmm. and it's out of Africa. The science that the human species originated in Africa is you know overwhelming, at least solid, mm-hmm. but the vast majority of people in this country don't accept it. Hmm. That was one of the survey items that wasn't in the 2018 paper. Wow, yeah. and and so. Uh, and by the way, and, and of course, it differs depending upon one's socially defined race. Mm. So people of African descent, even though the majority of them don't accept it, and that, mm. by the way, is surprising, still more of them accept it than any other group. Mm. Okay, With, of course, whites being the highest in rejecting the idea of out of Africa. Mm. So has anything changed? Um, you know, I, I don't know that there have been any other large national surveys 
Um, but my guess is over the last seven years, nothing has changed. Huh. And one of the reasons why we went to work on this book. Yeah. That issue of people not believing that we come from Africa, that, that's one of the things that makes it so much fun to teach biological anthropology, isn't it, Alan? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Actually, this is, <clears throat> this is at the forefront of my mind right now, what I'm about to ask you, because I am teaching my retooled version of Jim's course, which I picked up when I was at the University of Alabama from Jim. And we're in the sort of race and biology section of the course right now. It's a course for non-specialists. Most of them don't expect to be studying any human genetics or biology or, or population <laughs> genetics at all in this course. It's a global studies course. So it's like you know, people who want to go into international studies are taking this course. And one thing that they really struggle with when, when I do this relatively brief overview of sort of race and biology is the slippage that occurs between the concepts of population and the concept of race. And that to me is one of the hardest nuts to crack in terms of getting people up to speed with understanding what we mean when we say there's no biological validity to the concept of race. You sort of have to understand population as the alternative to race, right? So can you tell a little bit more about how you tackled that issue for a broader public in the book? The, the main contrast in the book is between whether or not there is variation in the human species and whether or not that variation is geographically patterned. And the answer there is unambiguously yes. And whether or not that variation kind of neatly packets into large continental-like groups that we have traditionally called biological races? And the answer there is patently no. And that's probably the biggest take-home of the book, if there is one big take-home. And I think, you know, as Jim knows and Joe can, you know, tell us, you know, there's all sorts of ways to show that human variation is neither explained nor described well by the concept of race. Humans do not have races, but they do vary. You know, they, they may not vary as much overall as some other species because we're a relatively young species, but we do vary. And what explains that variation is not so different from what explains the cost of your house, which is, as a real estate agent would say, location, location, location. 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 Yeah. yeah, I mean, and, and that's the thing. Is because, and, and Alan says this really well, is because humans are such a visual species, they tend to focus on variation that's, you know, varying with geography that they see. So skin color, for example. But even skin color doesn't apportion groups into biological races. And so, you know, everybody in the tropics has dark skin, you know, whether they're African, whether they're Indian subcontinent, whether they're Southeast Asian, whether they're Central Pacific, American. Pacific, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and also as well in the Pacific. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, skin color doesn't allow you to define races. Neither does, you know, hair type. Neither does general anthropometric proportions of the skeleton, you know, teeth type, we can go on and on, anti-malarial <laughs> adaptations, altitude adaptation, but people don't tend to see those, right? They, they tend to see, and also because, as we said, racism made race, <laughs> they've been taught to see that skin color is such an important variable of those that vary geographically within our species. Yeah. So, Joe, that was a great response, I think, especially 
you know, for the sort of common sense notion that, of course, skin color isn't a, a real determinant of anything, <laughs> at least when it comes to actual scientific categorization. So Nicholas Wade, as you I'm sure know, wrote that book a few years ago, even though he's a journalist saying, well, yeah, OK, we can get rid of the skin concept of race. But genes, it's definitely true that genes show that there are things like human races. And then I noted that a theoretical physicist wrote this article in 2020. In fact, just right before the, all the stuff with Ahmed Arbery um, started to come out in the news. And he says, oh, yeah, Nicholas Wade is correct. Because doubting that genes show that there is race is like doubting that there are Higgs bosons in physics. These are just things that scientists have told us, and therefore you can't doubt them. So when somebody like a theoretical physicist, not just a, you know Nicholas Wade, a journalist, says, oh yeah, but the genetics says that there are definite races, what's the punchback? Well, the punchback is number one, they didn't call me out. Okay, true. Okay. So <laughs> that's the first thing. And, yeah. and, and because, you know, the question of whether genetic variation within the species can be apportioned into biological races is really an evolutionary question. And mm -hmm. I, I respect folks in biological anthropology. Many of them know the theory behind this just as well as evolutionary geneticists do. But at the end of the day, I note how these folks always never seem to call me out because... Mm. You know, that would be like, you know, basically deciding to call Ali into the ring, and, <laughs> uh, you know, and trying to start some mess. So, you know, because, you know, what's his name? Wade did do that once, mm. and, you know. Yeah. And basically, I, I sent him to heaven within the first round. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the, the people who say this don't know the theory behind you know, how we even define biological races. And, and typically when you look at their stuff, when they say, of course, biological races exist, well, okay, well, then what's, what's the definition of what a biological race is? And when we examine modern evolutionary genetic definitions, such as amount of genetic variation within and between groups, and whether a group can be identified as a unique phylogenetic lineage, it's really clear that neither of those things are true in yeah. our species. Yeah. You can deploy algorithms like structure to show that there is some structure to human <laughs> genetic variation, but structure isn't race. Huh. So that was the mistake that Wade made, you know, in his 2002 piece in the New York Times and then in, later on in his book. Bottom line is people who act like they know but don't know hmm. should stay quiet. <laughs> <laughs> the rhetorical flourishes here really interesting and i'll just use continue with nicholas wade but also this theoretical physicist stay in your lane you know um and nicholas wade is right at the very beginning he talks about this being the social science uh, cabal denying human variation he doesn't even talk about the biological anthropologist and definitely not the evolutionary biologist who have led the way in understanding that race is not a biological concept, that humans do not have race. It's one thing. The second thing is that what, when will we quit looking for race under every stone there is or every little scraping under your fingertips or whatever in the human body? And, you know, I have 
This is William Z. Boyd. In 1950, skin yeah. and bones and things yeah. of that sort. He gets on his high horse and says, aha, now we're going to find it in the genes. And so I write this book called The Genetics in Human Races. And so now we've been looking in the genes for 72 years. Yep. With success, not at all. You know, and so when will finally they give up? And shame on Nicholas Wade that after so many years of covering human evolution, could not get it through his skull, the difference between human variation, the reality of human variation in the idea of race. So, so let me tell you guys a quick Wade story. Ooh, Back right. in 2002, I was on a um, panel that was convened by the American Museum of Natural History in New York City on the concept of race. And, you know, Wade was the moderator. <laughs> oh. And, you know, so, the, so you know, he's reading the bios of the members of the panel. And right next to me is a guy that was in my department. Okay. And so he properly identifies this person as an evolutionary biologist. And then he gets to me and doesn't read my biography at all. And describes me as a philosopher who had written, who has written about race. Whoa. I mean, he literally said that at this panel, oh even my though God. I was in the same department as the oh. guy next to me on the panel, wow. Department yeah. of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. Well, that takes a different kind of concept of race to do something that ignorant, doesn't it, Joe? Oh, my yeah. God. Oh. But, but that's, that's what we're dealing with here, which is also why these folks never call me up. Because yeah. quite frankly, they know they're not, not only are they not going to win, but they're going to look really bad in attempting yeah. to win. It's not hard to eat their lunch scientifically. Unfortunately, they have such a big internet platform that they just keep going and going and going and misinterpreting the science. Like Wade was misinterpreting the 2002 article on uh, the structure of the human population ge genetics. We all use the same principles that you use in the book to teach the lack of biological validity to race. That is looking at the apportionment of genetic variation within populations, between populations, and between races. And this goes back to Richard Lewinton's 1972 study where he correctly found that race accounted for a very small percentage of the genetic variation that was visible at that point in time. That conclusion has been nothing but amplified as we've gotten more and better genetic data. But even after the first draft of the Human Genome Project, Anthony Edwards comes out in 2003 arguing that there's a logical fallacy in, in the way that Lewontin was dealing with his apportionment of genetic variation. And one of the things that Edwards says is that you can statistically identify these groupings within human genes. And certainly you can, like we've talked about, you can use a, the structure program that Joe has mentioned many times or any other genetic clustering program to group populations together according to their genes. That doesn't have anything to do with race. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it, but, but the thing is it's it been carried over and it's now become a part of the scientific misinformation that is bandied about as part of the white supremacist Twitterverse where they're trying to make the case for biological race. So when you say Lewontin and apportionment of variation, the response by these folks is, 
well, that was a fallacy. And we have the publication, you know, the scientifically refereed publication by Edwards in 2003 to prove it. And it's just, it's really blown up. When you see Lewinton in the Twitterverse, one of the most frequent pairs of words with it is fallacy. Yeah. It's just insane because it is, it's become this white supremacist. It really has. Meme. Yeah. For, for lack of something better. So again, if you guys have a way to combat this, I'm getting old. I need to do this fast. So if you guys have uh, any tricks that we can use, uh, you know, we don't do tricks. You know? <laughs> we do science. We, so, yeah, but the science isn't working with these morons. <laughs> you know, but again, we didn't write this book for white supremacists. I know. That's true. That's true. We, we wrote this book for the people who want to take issue with white supremacy. So, Alan, help me here. Well, I, I, no, I think you said it really well. And the way I would just kind of highlight it a little bit more is to say that Edwards and Lewontin had vastly different goals in mind. And all Edwards was doing is he was showing that you can, with enough genes and ancestry informative markers that are weakly correlated, you can trace ancestry in the same way that 23andMe mm. is doing it all that stuff. And Lewontin wasn't interested in that. He was interested in gene by gene on average, how, how much variation is there within versus among races, two entirely different questions. And for Edwards to title his article, Lewontin's fallacy was just, you know, egregiously awful. Yeah. And so I, I asked, Lewontin about this when he was alive. He was living in Marlboro, Massachusetts, not far away from me. And so I had the pleasure of visiting him a number of times and talking to him. And he simply wasn't, he just nodded his head, but he was not going to bother get into the gutter and respond. I sort of wish he would have, because <laughs> as you say, you know, almost 20 years after Edwards's piece, the notion the you know, if you Google Lewontin's fallacy, you come up and up and up with all sorts of stuff. N just not true. You know, just not true. Yeah, one of, one of the things you guys don't know, if you don't know, a a Edwards was a student of Fisher. Oh, I didn't who, know who that. Who was a eugenicist. Okay. Yeah, yeah. A racist eugenicist. Oh, yeah. I had no idea. Okay. Well, that explains a lot. <laughs> it does. Yeah. And there was there was that, there definitely that political undertone to this argument. Totally. Yeah. And we will link in our show notes to Joe's paper about this. So those listeners who would like to know more about exactly why Lewin's fallacy isn't a fallacy, you can read it. Well, let's wrap up with one question that does get addressed in your book, Racism, Not Race. So you give several suggestions uh, that people could sort of take up and actually be anti-racist, actually try to kneecap white supremacy. Could you grab onto a couple that you'd like to share with our listeners that you think that people could push forward on their own? Yeah, I mean, you know, the bottom line is that um, what we wrote this book for was to, to be a tool for people who have questions about what race is, what it isn't, and how racism operates. And so what we really hope is that, you know, we've created easily accessible questions and given direct answers to them and that people will begin to engage in these difficult conversations. And one of the reasons why the conversations are difficult for some folks is because they simply don't know what to say. Huh. And what we've done is we've, we've given them the answer to 
all of the most common misconceptions ah, um, that great. people present. But at the end of the day, you know, nothing we've done will be effective unless people are willing to engage their friends, their neighbors, their relatives who hold these white supremacist, misinformed, racist ideas. Yeah. Thanks for talking with us, Alan and Joe. Listeners, be sure to get a copy of the book and become better informed about race. I'm Jim, the biological anthropologist. I'm Eric, the historian of science. And I'm Joe, the cultural anthropologist. And you have been listening to Speaking of Race. You can find us on Facebook at SOR Podcast, on Twitter and Instagram at Speaking of Race, and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening. Okay, you... Eric is frozen. Oh, no, I'm just holding very still. <laughs>